Please be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, as we come once again to this time in your word, we pray that you will guide us, you will strengthen us, you will do your work in our hearts and in our mind, that we will not be the same because because of your word, because of your Holy Spirit. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, with all the um, sadness and trauma that seems to be going around us in the world, it's uh, worth reflecting on the passing and the death of a very important person, which uh, really almost went unnoticed. Larry LaPrize, the man that wrote The Hokey Pokey, died at the peaceful age of 93. Now, the uh, most traumatic part for his family was getting him into the coffin. Yes, they, uh, they put his left leg in, and then the trouble started. Yeah, for those of you who are groaning, you'll be telling that story soon. Yeah, over lunch, probably, with some friends. Okay, well, uh, I want to talk this morning about this idea of suffering and suffering for a Christian. You know, uh, when you think about it, life for a Christian in uh, the 21st century America, or is it 22nd now? It's pretty good, isn't it? It really is, when compared to Christians throughout history. But in that pretty good life, suffering and pain seeps in, seeps in from time to time, doesn't it? What do we do with it? Now here's... a. Uh, Let me give you one modern approach. According to uh, Kenneth Copeland, Reverend Kenneth Copeland, the only suffering for a believer is the spiritual discomfort brought by resisting the pressures of the flesh. Not a physical or mental suffering. Jesus has already borne for us all the suffering in the natural and the mental realms. So we don't have to suffer physically or mentally anymore. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? This is good news according to Kenneth Copeland, but unfortunately, it's not the biblical message, not in the least. So let me uh, begin this morning by giving you what that biblical message is, and by first starting off in 2 Corinthians here, and then we'll move to the book of Revelation. See, this, uh, this section, by the way, of uh, 2 Corinthians is the theological and the heart and the turning point in this letter. If we were going through it, I would point that out more deeply. But the message here, the reason I, I have come to this section of 2 Corinthians and is because it really resonates very thoroughly with not only the general message of Revelation, but especially that, this little letter. So let's, uh, let's go to this letter here in 2 Corinthians. And what we are entering into is the the severe criticisms of the Apostle Paul and his response. So here was the issue, in a nutshell. Paul had been traveling, and he moved back toward Macedonia by traveling up from Ephesus to Troas so that he could uh, meet up with Titus and so that he could receive news of how the Corinthians had responded to a previous letter he had written, which uh, was referred to as the tear-filled letter. 
And when Titus didn't make it, Paul says he had no rest in his spirit over Titus and the church in Corinth. And despite the fact that there were some opportunities opening up for him to spread the gospel there, he left. Because of this, in the sight of his critics, Paul was unqualified to be an apostle. Why? Well, his, uh, his critics argue because he was clearly filled with anxiety, even as Paul himself admits. So to them, he couldn't be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because anxiety and the Holy Spirit don't go together. But Paul's anxiety had led him away from this opportunity of spreading the gospel. So according to them, Paul was clearly unworthy to be considered an apostle or even a mature Christian leader. That's a very serious critique, which uh, required a response from Paul, and, and Paul gives one. Now Paul doesn't respond by apologizing. Rather, on the other hand, Paul tells them that bearing that very anxiety is an example of part of the pain of his very calling as an apostle. What he tells them and us that is his worry and concern for them was the very evidence that he was called to be an apostle. If you've got your Bibles, in, in verse 28 of chapter 11, when Paul recounts the pain and suffering that he had to endure in his calling, he tells us and them that the daily pressure on him of concern for all the churches is really the peak and most difficult part of his pain. He writes, above everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. See, his concern was for their faith and their maturity in the gospel, and that lay very heavily upon him, especially their response to his tear-filled letter. So Paul is making a very important point, and it's a point, and it's point one on your outline, by the way. If you like to keep notes there, it's in the middle of your bulletin. It's this. Biblical Christian leadership qualifications begin with having a deep concern for the spiritual maturity of brothers and sisters in Christ. In all my uh, reading and studying in the fields of church growth, and I've done a lot of studying in that field, it has deeply concerned me that I don't see this kind of concern on, uh, this concern on display anywhere in those writings. In today's professional church world, the emphasis is entirely on being a professional, professionalism, which often has the opposite nature of the care and concern for the spiritual maturity and faith of God's people. Emphasized is professional distance and working for the health of the organization, especially in the area of funds, not for the spiritual health, growth, and vitality of the members of the congregation. See, in pursuing modern methodologies, many churches have lost the major concern of true Christian leadership and maturity. Look with me more carefully at this. Paul takes this a step further. In verses 14 through 26, Paul praises God for his anxiety over them as an essential part of his life of suffering. 
through which God's power and presence are, are being revealed. You know, I've often been prayerfully anxious for each of you and for all those whom I've had the privilege of serving over the years. But turning to God in praise has rarely come to my mind because of my anxiety over the faith and maturity of others. But that's what Paul models here. And it's something that I've had to learn over the years. It's an entirely countercultural and counter-sinful expression toward God. One that reflects values that are rich in grace and rich in the gospel message of the cross of Jesus Christ. See, I think we as Christians, especially Christians in this Western world, have come to understand the centrality of the, of the cross in the gospel. We have. We've even come to understand that the cross was the central aspect of all of history, but we've neglected or maybe chosen not to understand, and this is point two on your outline. The cross is to be the central aspect of our very identity. See, Jesus Christ didn't call us to take up our easy chair and follow him. Boy, I wish he did. He didn't call us to take up our vacation packages and follow him. He didn't call us to take up our retirement accounts and follow him. He called us to take up our cross, the instrument of torture and death for criminals in Christ's day. To be Christ-centered is to be cross-centered. The central element of a mature Christian faith begins and ends with that understanding. We are not called to follow Christ and find self-fulfillment, unlike what uh, many so-called Christian books tell you. We aren't called to follow Christ and find great health and wealth. We're not called to follow Jesus and get our miracle on. We are called to follow Christ and suffer and die. To give up all our worldly plans, purposes, and desires, daily putting them to death, killing our fleshly desires. Now, some of you uh, younger people today, and maybe some of you older ones, might be sensing that kind of a call to follow Jesus onto the mission field, to follow him in sacrificial giving and sacrifice and service, to follow him in spreading the good news of salvation in him each and every day. I hope indeed that is some of your calling today. You know, I've often struggled and wondered why Paul gives thanks as he thinks of the pain that he experiences as a major aspect of his calling. Look more closely at it with me here. See, Paul thanks God because God always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and therefore through us spreads or makes known everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Let me unpack that further for you here. See, the verb lead in triumph, triambeo, is actually a very technical term that refers to the Roman institution of the, of the triumphal procession. And this is very important, and it's key for us to understand what Paul is trying to tell us here as followers of Jesus. I want you to get a vivid picture of this, so let me see if I can explain it a little better. See, you see this triumphal par parade was this lavish celebration of military victories. Lines of soldiers and the wealth of the defeated nation 
were paraded before the people in celebration of their military victory. The parade often also included those captured leaders and the greatest enemy warriors presented as prisoners and slaves for the people to look at. Those, they were often, by the way, led to death. The Caesars and the generals were honored with these kinds of parades. For the prisoners, though, it meant utter defeat and shame, completely disgraced, bound in chains, and dragged before the chariot of Caesar. Now, the most remarkable part of this picture is that Paul is the direct object of the verb, not the subject. See, Paul is not the victor leading the parade. He is the one being led in it as a slave or a prisoner. The picture is, uh, by the way, so startling and ugly that even John Calvin, who I trust in many ways, couldn't stomach it. How could Paul draw such a picture and then praise God for it, Calvin wrote. So he decided, instead, that Paul must have meant something else. He instead turned it around translating it as, thanks be to God who causes us to triumph. It makes better sense, he thought, that God causes us to triumph. For Calvin, who influenced our understanding of this text for nearly 300 years, it just made better sense that we were riding in the chariot with Jesus. And this translation, by the way, is still being promulgated in the uh, King James Version. Now, unfortunately, the Greek has to be tortured linguistically to come to that translation. It simply isn't what Paul is saying here. So let's, uh, let me see if I can dig a little deeper and see what Paul is really trying to tell us. Remember in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, Paul tells us that if, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Here's Paul's point. As the enemy of God's people, God had conquered Paul at his conversion and now was leading him as a slave of Christ, which, by the way, is Paul's favorite term for himself as an apostle. And now that Jesus has conquered him, He is now leading him to death in Christ so that Paul might display the majesty, power, and glory of Jesus, his conqueror. Wow. Think about that. I want you to get a good grasp of this picture. Because for me, this picture has transformed how I view myself and the ministry to which God has called me. In every suffering, there's a certain amount of death. Remember in the great chapter on the resurrection in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15? Well, in verse 31, in reference to his own suffering and even facing wild animals, Paul says, I die every day. See, Paul's suffering for the gospel, his being led as a prisoner to death in the triumphal parade to the glory of Jesus, is how God is revealing 
himself. Why? Well, sometimes it was so God could rescue him. Other times it was so that he could grow in his endurance, having been strengthened in hope, which ultimately brought Christ even more glory. See, Paul's metaphorical picture goes a step further as he describes the aroma that is spread around, which of course is pointing back to the Jewish sacrificial system. The fragrance of the knowledge of God is being spread, the sacrifices that are pleasing to God. And so here is Paul's point, and it's point number three on your outline. The knowledge of God is being spread through Paul's suffering. The fragrance of Christ rises through Paul's life. Jesus is the sacrifice in Paul's life is the channel through which that aroma is spread, an aroma pleasing to God. The cross of Christ is being revealed through the suffering of Paul as he moves out in his calling to make disciples of Jesus. Part of that suffering is his concern for the churches. That's at the heart of the vision that God has given us here at Parkway, isn't it? Loving others to real life in Jesus. Don't we, in essence, have that same calling? You see, to meet Paul in his suffering on behalf of the churches for those whom he's building up through the power of the Spirit is to encounter a picture of the crucified Christ who died for his people. And it must be for that as, for us as well. See, those who receive Paul in his suffering where the glory of God is being revealed in the cross of Christ, they're the ones being saved while those who are perishing reject this as just mere foolishness. Let me give you an example. Zhang Mao, during the 1960s in China, understood this passage very well. And what we'll soon see, by the way, in Revelation as well, which echoes this. The story begins with this. Abandon your faith. The communist police officer shouted at Mijang Mao. The officer's fist slammed down on the table. Mao replied quietly, Jesus is the savior of my life. I I cannot obey your order. Only seven weeks after his conversion from atheism, Mijang Mao became a preacher of the gospel, which is, by the way, common in uh, underground churches in China. Believers there don't wait to get a seminary degree. They just begin right away to tell about their First experiences with Jesus. Mao had been arrested for spreading what the police called the poison of imperialism. They beat him, and he prayed while they beat him. A supernatural joy filled him. He felt the Holy Spirit surround him, and nothing that the communists did could make him deny Jesus. He was sentenced to five years, but was later given another ten years for preaching in the slave labor camp. Mao's wife, abandoning all hope of ever seeing him again, divorced him. When he heard the news, he was deeply broken. Then he remembered these words from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, and he uh, wrote a hymn based on those words. Mao continued to preach to his fellow inmates. Then came a terrible winter, with temperatures close to zero, An epidemic swept the prison. Out of 1,300 prisoners, 1,050 died. Mao himself was so sick that his 
captors pronounced him dead and took him to the morgue. But he wasn't dead. In the morgue, surrounded by dead men, he prayed and saw an angel dressed in white whose face shone with God's glory. The angel blew upon him, and immediately the sickness left him, and he felt better. He knelt and thanked God, and he walked out of the morgue. The prison doctor saw him walking around and cried out in fear. He thought Mao was a ghost, just like the disciples did when the resurrected Jesus appeared. But Mao said, don't be afraid. I'm Zhang Mao. God restored me to health. He sent me to show you the way to Jesus. The doctor knelt and said, your God is a reality. After 15 years, Mao was released from prison and he continued to work secretly in the underground church for another 18 years. But at his release, he told the authorities this, suffering did not diminish my faith, but only intensified my trust and relationship with Jesus. So uh, point four on your outline there, is Paul writes that he is a sort of litmus test Revealing the hearts of others. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the, ugr- to the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? See, Paul's message and the lived-out message of his life and suffering, which corresponds really to the cross of Christ. Paul is being led to death, which reveals the cross. We are an aroma of Christ up to God. The cross of Christ isn't just the message on his lips, it is the message of his very life. But who could possibly be equal or sufficient for such a task or calling? That's Paul's question. Paul wasn't sufficient to it in and of himself. No one is in and of themselves. That's why when a person's life truly displays this, we can be certain that this is indeed God's calling and empowering in that person's life. Moses was insufficient to his calling, yet God empowered him. The the prophets were insufficient, yet God empowered them. Let's step back for a moment. Let's be honest with ourselves. We live in a culture of self-absorption and me-centeredness like maybe believe no other time in history before. This has even become a normal way of life in many churches today. While we might profess to distrust and even reject the health and wealth gospel, the truth is that uh, many aspects of that philosophy have taken hold in the average evangelical church. Even ones that profess to reject the health-wealth gospel. In today's uh, evangelical world, we find it almost impossible to grasp the idea that God would not only use suffering as a vehicle for revealing His presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, that God might lead someone to death for the sake of revealing His glory and spreading the gospel. We have a hard time wrapping our minds around that. That seems like silliness to us. Though we might proclaim to reject it, the truth is that we think that if someone just had enough faith, 
they should be able to avoid or easily overcome all the problems in their life. Our marriages should all work really well. Our children should be model Christians and citizens. We believe that the beautiful and the healthy are really the blessed and the ones who are strongest in their faith. Isn't that what we kind of believe? You know, once uh, when a leader in a church I was serving at had acted in ways that required discipline, and we were uh, reviewing the matter and considering what needed to be done, I was told by another elder that because that leader's children were all very successful, that they must be innocent. You know, we're likely to follow someone who is eloquent of speech, someone over someone who has shown endurance through trials and pain and difficulty. We prefer to follow someone who has a dynamic personality than one who has shown perseverance through suffering. We would rather listen to someone who promises us miracles than someone who calls us to holiness and moral living. We'd rather attend a wealthy, prosperous, prosperous, large, outwardly victorious church than one that has shown endurance through suffering. Have you received your miracle today? Do you have enough faith? These were the questions that the most popular TV preacher asks almost every Sunday. You haven't received your miracle because you just haven't had enough faith. See, there's then the other side. The sophisticated church growth and business models. The the thinking is if we just pragmatically institute the right programs or the right business philosophies, then we'll be successful. The result in many churches is what Dr. David Wells calls a practical atheism. An atheism that reduces the church to nothing more than the services it offers or the good feelings that the pastor can generate. In other words, the ministry will typically be deprived of its transcendence and reduced a little more than a helping profession. I hope that's never said about us. Let's uh, now turn to this tiny letter to the church at Smyrna. Paul's message to the Corinthians is really very similar to that of the Apostle John to the church in Smyrna. Let me give you a little background. Smyrna was 35 miles north from Ephesus where that first letter that we looked at was uh, first addressed. It was, very, it was an important center for the worship of the state, for the worship of Rome, and for the worship of Caesar. Now historically, we know that due to the fact that uh, they refused to take part in the ritual worship of Rome and Caesar, the Christians there were persecuted and impoverished. Only uh, Jews were exempt from worshiping the emperor and were viewed tolerantly for a while. The Romans at first saw the Christians as a, as a sort of a sect of Judaism, and so they were at first protected from persecution. Unfortunately, many synagogue leaders seem to have felt it necessary to distinguish themselves very sharply from Christians or even to make the Jewish Christians unwelcome in the synagogues 
Do you see the reason for the terminology there? The synagogue of Satan. The Christians also had to bear lies told about them by certain Jews, accused of being agitators against Rome. Now I know from personal experience that that's very difficult when people you know well and trust betray you, tell lies about you. I think it's one of the most difficult trials. Let me give you another little bit of insight uh, into what uh, this little message to to the church at Smyrna is saying. The term for crown here is Stephanos. Diadema would be used for crown of kings. Stephanos has more to do with symbolically with the joy and victory. The Greek term was often used for the garlands that were put on the heads of the winners in the Olympics. See, John also uses the term second death here. You know, the first death, that's physical death. But the second death is spiritual death, as Jesus teaches us in the Gospels. So John's message really to them is very simple. I can, I can give it to you here in a very nutshell. But it's also a very hard one. And it's point five on your outline. Be prepared for suffering and ultimately for martyrdom. See, in their situation where they were under regular persecution, they needed to be prepared to pay the ultimate cost. Now let me uh, give you another observation here. Of the seven churches, and we're going to look at each one of them, the only two that only receive positive commendation are the suffering churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia. Why? Well, suffering has a way of reminding us which things in life really matter, don't they? Forcing us to depend radically on God and thus purifying our obedience to God's will. But it's important to know God's heart before we face that suffering so that we might understand our suffering in light of his love for us, in light of his sharing our suffering in the cross. That way we don't interpret his heart toward us just based upon our suffering. See, we cannot explain why some suffer much more than others. Billy Graham, uh, writing about this particular little letter to Smyrna, writes, all I know from the short letters in Revelation is this, Christ commands us to overcome and the strength he alone can supply. So the question for us to think about is do we increasingly reflect the peace and praise that comes from understanding the role of suffering in our lives and in the life of our church? Let me give you another example. Most of us understand the atrocities of a Nazi concentration camp. We know what happened there, and we can conjure up the images in our imagination. Cattle cars packed with people traveling for days, nothing but a bucket in which to relieve themselves, forced labor, starvation, torture, disease, gas chambers, and crematoriums. It was a literal hell on earth. So when Corey and Betsy Ten Boom arrived at Ravensbrück, which was a notorious Nazi death camp that killed nearly 100,000 women, 
They spent their first night in an open field, hiding from the drizzle under a thin blanket. After three days sleeping out in the open, they were taken to an intake barracks, a building designed for 400 women that at that time held 1,400. After a month there, they were taken to barracks 28, which would be their last stop. The first night in barracks 28, they listened to the sound of fighting as erupted around the room. A burst of shouting, the sound of slaps and punches, sobbing, and then the quiet, mournful tears to which they would fall asleep. Betsy remarked that there had been too little praying in that place, and so the two sisters set about to change that. They began to lean into a verse from 1 Thessalonians, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. That verse began to guide their approach to their own captivity. In their barracks at night, they would huddle around the scriptures. Betsy would read a passage, and the women closest to them would translate the Dutch into German, then into Russian, then Polish, and then back into Dutch. Then the words would be whispered along like a game of telephone until they'd reached all who uh, wanted to listen, all who were huddled around those two sisters. Then Corey would preach. She would tell them the Nazi narrative was false, that human beings had dignity, that life was precious, and that this incredible evil was not stronger than the love of God, and that it would be defeated one day. Corey's words would uh, be translated and passed around the room as well. Over time, something strange began to happen. The women started to believe that it was true. Barracks 28 became an oasis of peace in the midst of a storm of hellish violence and torture. Every night the women could look forward to at least a few minutes, sometimes an hour or more, in which to gather with other women to read the scriptures and to pray. It became for them a source of strength. They were a little colony of heaven in a culture of hell which I believe is one of the best metaphors of the church I've ever read and uh, could give you the message of Revelation in a nutshell. See, the church in our culture should gather in the same way and largely for the same reasons. To be a colony of heaven in a culture of hell. Which, by the way, is the final point on your outline. See, in that Nazi death camp, Corey and Betsy Ten Boom were able to stop asking the question of suffering. Is God good and all-powerful? And start asking the more important question. How can I serve God's kingdom here and now? The movement from that first question to the second question is the movement that each and every one of us needs to make here at Parkway. The movement away from endless questions about God's power and God's goodness and toward the more important missional question. What is God doing in this place and how can I join that mission? This is the difference between despair and hope. It's the movement that each of us has to make. And so I want you to start asking that question. See, my brothers and sisters, our identity is in the cross of Christ. 
and the victory that that cross brought us, but it is also our lives. We are cross-centered believers, and so we see suffering and trials, even within our church, very differently. God is, put, is busy putting our old self to death, and so should we. We are a pleasing aroma to God as we live faithful, obedient, radical lives of sacrifice. Let me close with this uh, last illustration. Most of you are familiar with the, Na- the Nicene Council, which was an important meeting in the 4th century A.D., from which uh, we today have one of the most important creeds of the church, the Nicene Creed, right? Which gives us a very important statement about Jesus' deity, his full deity, and his full humanity. What most people don't know is that of the 318 delegates that attended that meeting, only 12 of them had not been physically tortured for their faith. You heard that correctly. 306 out of the 318 delegates had lost an eye or lost a hand or limped on a leg lamed by torture for their Christian faith. Let's pray together.